Hey folks, thank you for joining me today. Just wanted to let you know two things about this week's episode. Number one, it was actually supposed to come out last week. I was able to record it uh, in the middle of two trips that I took, but I was not able to get it edited and scheduled before I left for the second trip. So apologies for this being a week late. And then number two, when I recorded it, it was pretty late at night right before the second trip and I was a little bit tired. So apologies in advance if I stumbled over my words or rambled a little bit more than usual. But I think you're gonna like this episode. I cover six questions that I got from Instagram that are on the topic of going industry after grad school and I think you're gonna find them very interesting. So here we go, on to the show. Hey folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Carlson, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations that will help grad students like you survive grad school and thrive in a post-grad school career. If you end up enjoying today's podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we talk about today. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Hey folks, and welcome to the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for people, grad students, who want to get a non-academic job after they finish grad school. My name is Matt, and I am your host. So, I am actually still in the middle of traveling. Um, I was able to make a quick pit stop at home, so this week's recording is the part two from last week's recording. Um, but we will have regular audio quality, which is good. And so for this episode, I'm going to be finishing up where I asked folks to send in questions on Instagram that I was going to answer on the podcast. So we did six last week, and now we're going to do six more this week. So first question, it's been three weeks since my third interview, and I've gotten no emails. Should I contact the hiring manager? Uh, you know, I don't know off the top of my head if there's like a rule of thumb for how long to wait, but I would think a week, typically, you know, a week or two is, um, expected in order to hear back because folks are typically vetting, you know, if you're in the third interview, that's usually around the last interview and they've probably whittled it down to a handful of candidates at that point. Um, so there's probably two or three and they're making decisions. And if you don't hear back within the first week or two, you may not be their first pick. You may be their secondary pick and they're basically waiting to go back and forth with their first pick to see if they accept the offer. Maybe they made a counter offer. Maybe their first pick is considering an offer from another company. And, um, so it takes time to get back to you. Uh, full disclosure, I was actually not the first pick for the job that I got straight out of academia. I believe I was their second pick. I don't know exactly, but there was a delay um, and they did stay in contact with me. So like every week or so I'd reach out to them and they would say, oh, hey, you know, we're still evaluating. We're wrapping things up. We're going to get back to you. And they did give me a date. Um, and then we went back and forth and negotiated a little bit on salary and start date and uh, then moved forward. So, you know, if it's been a couple of weeks, I think you you are more than welcome to contact the hiring manager. I think it's a good thing to do. Um, I think 
a week is fine. I think getting in touch every week um, to make sure you're still being considered for the job. That being said, you know, it is pretty common to get ghosted. So I would say, you know, keep moving forward um, while you're also contacting that hiring manager. Keep applying for jobs. You never know uh, who's going to pick you up. Question number two, how do you know what jobs you're qualified for? Uh, And then question number three is, how do you know what job titles to begin looking for? Um, So these are similar questions to one that I hit on last week, and that's basically how to find out what kind of jobs to be applying to. And I'm going to say the same thing that I said last week, and that's that I think a bottom-up way of approaching finding out what job titles you will best fit is the way to go. And so my bottom-up approach is to get on LinkedIn and search for your degree whether it's PhD in philosophy, PhD in psychology, you know, masters in biology, whatever it may be, search your degree in the search bar, put it in quotes, um, and then look at the results that you get. You're going to get a mixture of people. Usually it's three categories. You're going to get current grad students in that area. You're going to get faculty or professors in that area. And then you're going to get people in industry who have been in those programs and graduated with those degrees. And that third category, those are the people that you really want to find. And so I suggest you make a spreadsheet where you record the people that you find who have your degree in industry. And I would recommend going through 10, maybe even 20 profiles in order to find as many people as you can who have your exact degree. And what that's going to tell you is that's going to show you the range of jobs that you'll most likely be eligible for when you hit the industry market. Um, You know, I I did this for myself just as a a practice run. I think I actually used PhD in psychology because my field, human development and family sciences, is really small. Um, So I used PhD in maybe developmental psych, I don't remember. And I got a range of like five to ten common job titles that were popping up um, for people uh, in industry. Now, that being said, I did have to go through, I think, 10 to 15 pages of profiles. And so that's probably in the range of like 100 to 150 profiles. Because again, if you go back and think about it, there's going to be a lot of students on there. There's going to be some faculty, ignore those as well. And then you're going to have the remainder will be the people you're looking for. So maybe maybe 50 of those, 25 to 50 of those 100 to 150 profiles I looked at were actually who I was looking for. And then out of that, I got five to 10 job titles. And then from there, you can really dig down and start looking at, oh, hey, do I does this job title sound interesting? Is the pay range something that I'm looking for? Um, And then if, you know, those kind of things match what you're looking for, then it's time to start doing informational interviews. And that's really going to be what gives you the high fidelity, um, zoomed up view into what the job is actually like, as well as what you need to get that job. So you'll, you should be able to know what the day-to-day is like, if that's something that's going to be enjoyable to you, if it's something you'll be good at. And then also you'll know if you need to do any upskilling in order to really be competitive for that job. Maybe you need to learn another language, like I learned SQL in order to apply for data analyst roles. Maybe you need to create a por- portfolio um, 
a portfolio project to showcase your work. You never know. But those informational interviews are really going to give you some great um, information to get you started. And then once you get into industry in your first job, you start networking a little bit more. You start interfacing with different roles, whether it's on the same team or in your department or cross-department. You're just going to kind of learn the industry. And within a year or two, you're going to know... You know, I want to move into this kind of a role or that kind of a role or just uh, move up in my current role. So anyway, I hope that's helpful. I'm sure there are other ways to do it. You could just Google like, you know, jobs for developmental psychologists in industry. And probably what you're going to find are just like lists that people have made on a blog, which is fine. And those can be helpful. Um, they may not be data driven. And uh, they're not going to connect you with people that you can do informational interviews with. So I think for those two reasons, I recommend doing it the way I recommend. So anyway, moving on. Question four. How do I ask a question about work-life balances without sounding like I won't do work? I love that question. So whenever you're in interviews, it's, uh, it's always interesting to try to suss out what the work-life balance of a company is going to be like. And there's a couple, before I address that question specifically, there's a couple things I'd like to talk about around that. So there are resources before you get to the interviews that you should be accessing. Number one, the easiest one is going to be Glassdoor. Sites like Glassdoor basically allow people to give anonymous feedback about a company, whether it's the salary they had, how much they like their management, what the work culture is like in the company, and a variety of other things. And so if your company, the company that you're interviewing at is, you know, a medium to a large size company, they're going to be on Glassdoor, and you're going to be able to get some uh, usually pretty good information from Glassdoor. Now, that being said, you will have to sign up for a profile on Glassdoor to access more information. Um... They may give you like a little summary up front without without signing in. And then I think in order to really dig into their information, you're going to have to add some information yourself. So maybe you could add, you know, that you're a research assistant at the university you're at and you could add the pay scale you were on and maybe like a brief summary of what your experience was like. And that will unlock more information for you. So Glassdoor is a great resource. I highly recommend it. If I remember, I will put a link in the show notes and uh, you can check that out. So Glassdoor is a good one. Number two, um, talking with people in the company who aren't part of the interview process. If you are active at doing informational interviews, you know, hopefully those informational interviews are going to connect you with positions that are available and then you'll already have the inside scoop on what working for that company is like. So that's a great way to do it. Also, if you don't have the inside scoop, you can always just reach out to people uh, who are you know, in a similar role at the company. Maybe they're not on the same team or in the same department. Um, but you can just ask if they'd be willing to talk about it. And just say that you, you were interested in working at the company and you saw there was an open position and you'd just like to ask them a few questions. You may have to ask a couple people before you get one to agree and actually get on the phone with you. Um, but I think that's a good way to go. And then let's get back to the question at hand. So let's say you're actually in an interview and you need to answer a question or you need to ask a question to suss out what the work-life boundaries are like. What are the work-life boundaries like? 
is probably not the question you want to ask. You probably want to frame it in more of like a, how would you describe the company culture? How would you describe the company's work culture? You know, another one you, you could ask is, um, what are some common reasons that people end up uh, leaving the company or leaving positions like that? That's kind of a negative question, so that may that may throw some recruiters, but uh, I think I think you, it, that could suss out some interesting answers. You know, one thing to think about is if you're at the stage where you're talking to a recruiter or a person in HR, you're probably going to be getting uh, more of the like official brochure esque responses. I think once you get further along and you're able to actually talk to people on the team, you're more likely to get a response about. Um, what the work-life balance might be like. You know, another way to suss that out could be to ask, like, what's the balance of meetings and uh, personal work time that you typically have on the team? Or how many meetings would I be expected to go to in an average day? I think one more thing that I would add before I move on from this is that if when you're thinking about work-life balance, and this is something that I, I took away from a conversation on the podcast that I had with S.D. Cohen, um, a uh, job recruiter and owner of, of a boutique recruiter agency. She pointed out that typically bigger companies are going to be the ones that can offer greater work-life balance. And some of that is simply because there are more employees that are able to fill in any slack there is. Um, let's say if you take some time off uh, or you're just having a rough week. Whereas smaller companies are going to be a lot more hard-pressed in order to make up for any gaps in, in labor productivity. And, you know, that may be because something as simple as you're the only person on the team or in the company who fills that role or has that specific skill. Um, and so if you're not doing it, it simply doesn't get done. And in smaller companies, uh, particularly startups, there is a little bit more of a, a grind culture where, you know, you you don't have necessarily benefits, but usually you'll have a decent salary, um, maybe even above average, and you may have stock in the company. And it's just a little bit more go, go, go. So I think if you're wanting more of a slower pace, then going for larger companies is typically the way to go. That being said, of course, there are going to be some exceptions. But anyway, those are all the thoughts I have about sussing out work-life boundaries. I actually think the interview is probably the, the worst place to get some of that information. I think, um, you know, you, you, there are good questions that you can ask, but I think people, when they're in interviews, are usually going to give you more of the political answer or the brochure answer to try to just, you know, put the best foot forward for the company. Um, yeah, you know, pe people are not, probably not going to tell you, you know, the work-life balance sucks here. Don't come work here. That's something that you'll get from Glassdoor or conversations with people in the company or who have worked at the company before, um, who are not part of the interview process. So let's move on to question number five. What were your advisor's thoughts, people in your committee, your peer grads? 
So I assume that's about going industry. So what are my advisor's thoughts or, or committee member's thoughts or my peer grad's thoughts about going industry? So I actually took a research scientist role after I graduated with my PhD and I was doing program evaluation and I did that for about two years before I decided to leave that job and then eventually went industry about a year after that and you know I told my advisor that I was leaving academia probably about a year into the research scientist role and his response um, kind of surprised me I expected him to be more like oh dang I didn't see that coming but his response was more of, yeah, it seems like pretty much everyone's going industry these days. Um, and he really didn't seem that surprised. And I thought that was a really interesting response. And now looking back on it a couple years later, I think it's telling that it's just so hard to get a good tenure track job in academia. And even if you do, many tenure track faculty end up leaving to go industry. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, people in my committee, I don't, I don't know if they even know that I went industry since I did get an academic job and moved on from there. Um, people in my peer grads, I don't know. Some of them have been positive about it. No one's been negative about it. The majority have been positive. And I think, you know, everyone in, in our cohort, uh, you know, not just my like little group, but our like like year cohort, like all across grad students, we all know how difficult it is being a grad student and then how grindy and toxic and it can often be even when you become a faculty person. Sometimes it actually gets worse going from grad student to a faculty person. Um, and so, you know, I don't think anyone is like really that surprised or uh, you know, looking down on people who end up going industry. It's really the, I think the older professors who may be out of touch with what the job market is really like, who end up shitting on grad students who decide to go industry. And then there's probably like one or 2% of faculty around my age who are like, you know, assistant, maybe approaching associate professor, um, who are just like loud and obnoxious on Twitter about how people going industry are making the wrong decision. But I think most people are actually pretty positive about it, uh, except for established academics, because of course, grad students going industry undercuts the academic system. And the academic system is built on uh, just a, a gluttony of labor so that, you know, the very top percentile can be taken and moved on to the next stage and uh, the majority ends up getting pushed out. And because it's so insanely competitive, you're able to do things like get free labor um, and really squeeze people for everything they're worth, which is related to our final question for today. Uh, so balancing demands of a new job and dealing with harassment about a paper submission from a PhD PI. So very interesting question. Um, and this actually has come up on Instagram before. I don't remember exactly what the situation was, but this is pretty common. You know, you'll end up taking a position, uh, whether it's academic or an industry, maybe you've got a paper or two still midway or near the end stages of getting published. 
and your advisor or previous advisor is hammering you to get it done and get it you know slabbed tagged and booked um, and so yeah it's a great question you know I think if you have an academic position particularly one where research is your job that's gonna be tough um, in order to balance those two things and I don't have a great answer for how to do that uh, setting boundaries is of course good but yeah it can be difficult in terms of if you have an industry job and you're dealing with harassment from your previous PI about papers and that kind of a thing uh, I think that was the situation that we addressed on Instagram a couple weeks ago and the majority of people basically said setting very clear boundaries about what you're willing to do and not willing to do is helpful and then a lot of other people said simply ghosting or stop it talking to that professor um, was another way of doing it you know I think how you handle it comes down to you and your preference but I think that is a uh, I think that is a common situation that I hear a lot about and I think I think it is related to what I was saying before about the fact that there's just there's so much free labor expectation wrapped up in academia and if you for me personally once I managed to get out I was just done I, I didn't touch it anymore I didn't I didn't do anything more with it luckily I didn't have a lot asked of me after I ended up leaving academia from any of my former colleagues um, but yeah no I was done and um, emotionally I was done and I think you know finding out what boundaries are important for you uh, is something that maybe you should explore in therapy or with a significant other or with a friend who deeply understands your situation and I think um, you know once you get into industry and you're in industry for a year or two you probably won't even think about those things anymore I don't even think about the publications um, that I worked on when I was a grad student and a research scientist and uh, you know that wasn't that long ago and those things consumed my life at the time to a large degree so uh, it's just interesting looking back and I think you know setting boundaries and, and in some sense moving on is good and I think for many people uh, accepting that some people will just never be satisfied with your output and what you give them is ultimately going to be part of that process of moving on and um, you know uh, there are a lot of interesting people in academia and uh, there's a lot of narcissism in academia and I think as soon as you are in a place to where you no longer have to put up with it I think that is a great healthy place to be and uh, kudos to you for getting to that place alright I hope that was a valuable episode I'm a little bit tired at the moment so apologies if I was rambling but those were great questions I really appreciate it I am gonna be traveling again over this next week so I'm not sure exactly what I'm gonna do with next week's episode but it is going to be interesting and it will help you in your search for your first 
industry job after grad school. Thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya. Folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of our episode today. If you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we covered today. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See y'all next time.